Well, brethren, it is a, it's a glorious day. Uh, it's an encouraging day for me, and I know for a lot of you here, and to be honest with you, as I said before, when we first moved down here, some of our families did. This day is not even one that I could have seen in the future, um, but, but it's a great encouragement to us. Um, God has been gracious to us more than I could even more than I could even thank Him for. And if this day is anything, it ought to be an encouragement to us, brethren, to take the gospel to the places that need it, whether on the mission field or, brethren, some of these people were our neighbors. We met Maritza when we moved in across the street. These are our neighbors. These are people we met at UNLV. These are people we met out, out, out on the strip. These are people that that we, we didn't do anything but put boots to the ground to go and talk to them about Jesus Christ. And if this ought to be anything to us, it ought to be an encouragement to do that, to be committed to that, to bring the gospel to people. Because God is faithful to save those who are His. Brethren, our labor is never in vain. It's never in vain. So that being said, what I, what I, what I felt like I wanted to preach on this week is something that probably pertains... Uh, you're going to notice, obviously, that it's it's very focused upon what happened today, but I, I don't think it's only for that. So the particular point in which I'm preaching on, this is what I've entitled this, Encouragement to Fight Hard and Run Well. Now maybe you would wonder why it is that I'm saying that. What in the world does fighting and running have to do with anything Christian? But we read these verses. Paul tells us, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And therefore, I have a crown waiting for me on the day of judgment. So the reality is the Scripture speaks like this. The Scripture uses these analogies because you know what it is? The faith is a fight. It is a race. And we have to treat it that way. We are exhorted constantly in Scriptures to fight hard and run well. Because the fact of the matter is, brethren, we're prone to grow weary. We're prone to not do either of those. We're prone to want to sit on the side. We're prone to want to fall asleep. We're prone to want to forfeit and throw in the white flag. We're prone to maybe run well for a short period and then, and then taper off. And so what I want to do is give you some encouragements, especially, especially you guys, some encouragements that we would fight hard and we would run well in the faith. And again, this isn't just for them. The fact of the matter is, folks, if you've been a Christian a long time, these things, these baptisms, just give us an opportunity to firm up for us some of the commitments that we've made a long time ago that maybe have become, that maybe have become slack over time. So whether you're, you're new to the faith or whether you've been a Christian a long time, brother, I want to give you seven components that I want us to fortify in our commitment to Jesus Christ. These are things that we need to firm up. If, if, if we're just beginning this, brethren, I want you guys to have a foundation upon which you can build upon. You guys need to have these. And if we've been in Christ for a long time, these are things we may need to come back and, and repair the foundation a little bit. But one thing I can promise you is that if you can grasp these, if you can really get, if you can get your arms around these seven things, I think you will fight hard and you will run well till the end. And you will say, like Paul said here, I have fought the fight. I have ran the race. I've kept the faith. 
And there's a crown laid up for me in heaven. And so let's do this. These are the seven. Number one, hold firm your confession. Look with me real fast. 1 Timothy chapter 6, just one book back. 1 Timothy chapter 6, at verses 11 through 14. Now we're going to come back to this a couple of times. But really, I just want you to consider verses 12 and 13. But we're going to read one through or 11 through 14 just so you can see what we're looking at. This is Paul speaking to Timothy, and here's what he says. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. These are all the things he said before. Those who desire to be rich and, and, and the love of money and, and the love of the world and all these other things. He says, flee that. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So like I said, we're going to come back. I want you to just take a look with me at 12 and 13. You can see what's being called to here. He says, fight the fight, fight the good fight, and take hold. Grasp onto eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the confession. Some of you made that confession today, but many of us have made that confession. So what I want to consider is, what is this confession that we are being exhorted to take hold of and hold on to and cling to until the appearing of Jesus Christ, as he says there in verse 14. So primarily, what is the confession? What is it that we confess? And you see, he, he links them he links our confession with Jesus' confession. He says that you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, and I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who also made a good confession. So it's important, I think, for us, if we're going to understand what we confess, we need to understand what it was that Jesus Christ confessed before Pilate. So look at this, John chapter 18 John chapter 18, look at me starting in verse 28. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Jesus is right here coming up to the crucifixion. We're talking day before and, he, and here they're, they're bringing Jesus back and forth between these, these officials to try, to try to get him or get them to condemn him to death. So verse 29, So Pilate went out, and said to, went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man, were doing e if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. 
This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or do others say it about you? Or do others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. So you see what he's saying. He's recognizing he has, his, he has a kingdom. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered him, You say that I am a king. Now, real quick, I just want you to know, sometimes that, that translation doesn't come across exactly right. You see, Pilate knows what he's saying. He recognizes Jesus is saying he is a king. And Pilate says to him, so you are a king. And really the response from Jesus is, you say correctly. You say it correctly that I am a king. Now he says this, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So we see two things. Number one, that Jesus confesses plainly that He is King. And number two, that He is the foundation of all truth. This is what He's come, to bear witness to the truth. He is the foundation of all truth. You remember Jesus' words, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, brethren, what do we confess? Well, for starters, we confess, as Jesus Christ did, that He is King, and all people owe their allegiance to this King. Amen. All people ought to bow down and worship this King. Like it says in Psalm chapter 2, Come and kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. All people are, are due to come and give reverence to the rightful king. So we confess what we read earlier. Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Brethren, we were, we were wicked and we were sinful in God's sight. And we had no hope and no expectation other than condemnation. We had nothing. We had, the scripture says you are without hope and without God in the world. You had nothing to bank on but eternal punishment and judgment from God. But God, says the scripture, isn't that a glorious thing? It says that he was, he was rich in mercy, such that even when we were dead in our sins, not while we were working our way, he says, you were dead in your sins and I made you alive. That's what we have in Scripture. And God's grace is so fully displayed in the slaughtering of His own Son in our place. Brethren, He took our place. He took my place. If you are in Christ, He took the punishment that you actually deserve before God. It doesn't just go away. He doesn't just push it under the rug. 
It is Jesus Christ that was killed and paid your punishment for your sin. He died for His people. He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. And He is now seated, ruling, and reigning as King. Brethren, He's due our adoration. And He's due our worship. He is the rightful King. So what else do we confess? Well, we confess, as Jesus Himself said, that He is the source of all truth. And we confess these words. Colossians 2, 3. In Him, this is Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Brother, you see, our confession matches up with what we see here. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 says it on the other end. So we have Jesus, Jesus, all the treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge are in Him. So, so knowledge and understanding and wisdom is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, Psalm 14, Psalm 53 says it like this. The fool... The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Brother, why are they fools? It is because Scripture tells us there is but one prerequisite for knowledge and understanding. It is the fear of the Lord. And this they deny, brethren. They reject this. The world rejects that. They reject Jesus Christ. They reject the fear of the Lord. So the Scripture says they're fools. They have no knowledge. But we confess, brethren, that God be true and Jesus Christ be true and every man be a liar. And we recognize that the world is buried in foolishness. We confess, brethren, that unbelievers are in a very real... And hear me on this. Unbelievers are in a very real sense the height of foolishness. They are unintelligent. They are, brethren, they, they act in a dumb way. Not, not in some pejorative form or some degradative, like they're just dumb, but they, are, they don't recognize the truth. They just deny it. They have no foundation for truth, but they attempt to act as though they do. But how do they do so? What are they going to do? They're going to borrow. They're going to borrow from everything we have. They're going to borrow from the foundation of God to try to claim what can be true or cannot be true. That this is or is not wrong. Well, they have no foundation for that other than God's Word. So apart from Jesus Christ, brethren, there's no truth. There's no foundation of knowledge. Everything stems from Christ. So we confess that. That Jesus Christ is the foundation of that. And let me tell you this, brethren. The world will mock you for that. You can be sure of that. They will consider you to be the foolish one. Listen to this. You don't have to go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 speaks about this. Here's what he says. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Maybe you don't know what that word folly means. I remember reading it in the Spanish, in my Spanish Bible one time, and it says locura. It means crazy. <laughs> the word of the cross is crazy to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And brethren, if you 
If you know the Lord, you can attest to that. That the word of the cross to unbelievers is crazy. You tell them that you trust in a carpenter that died on a cross 2,000 years ago, and they're going to tell you you're crazy. But to us, what is it? It's the power of God to those who are being saved. I don't care if you tell me I'm crazy or not. Jesus Christ is reigning in heaven. Bow your knee to Him and worship Him. So that they'll ridicule you. They'll think that you're the one that's crazy. But the fact of the matter is, brethren, it's because they're blind. They can't see. I remember talking to Baumlock when I first met her, and she started telling me about how it was that God saved her. And she started talking about, well, I was walking around, and I felt like I, 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 the veil was lifted off of my eyes. And I, but I didn't understand because I didn't know that I couldn't see. And now I, now I know that I didn't see, and now I know that I do see. But that's how it is, brethren. The veil's lifted. They can see. They, but, but, but the unbelieving world can't see that. You see, the Scripture says, look at this. Chapter, well, if you're not there, just listen. Chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. So that's what it is. They can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. They don't have that. So as the world mocks, as Satan seeks to draw you away from your confession, brethren, hold firm. Hold firm to that confession. You remember what Peter said, John chapter 6, all the disciples go away and, they, and, and even the 12 disciples are standing there going, Jesus you just said some pretty hard things. And all of the other disciples go away. And Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, Are you going to? And Peter looks and says, You have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? And if there's anything we need to hold firm to, brethren, it is that. That even in the times of, of impossible difficulty, that we would recognize, where are we going to go? If I leave Christ, where am I going? I can't just undo everything. Believe that, brother, and trust that. Cling to that. And if necessary, die for that confession. Secondly, do it with your whole heart. Brother, I don't want you to just believe this is facts. I don't want you to just hold on to this confession intellectually. I don't want you to just take this in as, as religious theory and maybe in some points you, you apply it and over here maybe not so much. I desire that you would do this with all of your soul and all of your mind. Folks, if you're going to run, run well. If you're going to get in a race and you're going to run, race. If you're going to get in a fight, fight well. And that's what, we're saying about, that's what we're saying about this Christian life. If you're going to do it, put everything into it that you have. And you know this. Listen, the Old Testament tells us this, and Jesus brings it out in the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. There's nothing left there to be... Don't do it just a little bit. He says with everything you have. And Jesus gives us this warning in Revelation. Don't be hot. Or you, you had better be cold or hot. Don't be lukewarm. Because those who are lukewarm, Jesus says, I will spit out of my mouth. 
That's not the type of Christianity that Jesus Christ is looking for. And in fact, lukewarm Christianity is one, just a total contradiction. It doesn't make sense. Listen, Christianity is devotion and worship and love of the God that saved us. Lukewarmness in the midst of that doesn't even make sense. And two, it is a disgrace of the worth of Jesus Christ. When we become cold and calloused and hard-hearted, we do not think rightly about the gospel. I want you to think about this. Listen to the, the resolve of the Israelites. Go to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 15. So if you remember, you had through the history of Israel and through the history of Judah, you had good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king. <laughs> Some order like that. But, but what you had was all of these bad kings would lead the people astray, and then you'd have one king who would come in, and he'd have to undo everything. And here's what you get. Look at the resolve of these people when Asa becomes king. 2 Chronicles chapter 15. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or him who came in. For great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crossed by nation, and city by city. For God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you, take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel, where he saw that the Lord his God was with him. They were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord that day from the spoil that they had brought, seven hundred oxen and seven thousand sheep. Now watch. And they entered in a, into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with their whole with their heart and with all of their soul. But that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and with trumpets, with horns. 
And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. Brethren, so you see it. They enter into covenant to seek the Lord with all their heart, with all their strength. And then they come together, and with loud voice and shouting, they swear an oath to seek the Lord. Now the sad part is, they didn't do that. They didn't hold up to that. But brethren, what I'm, what I'm pushing to you is that you would make that, and you would hold on to that with all your being, and with all your heart, and with all your soul. Listen, I want you to hear these words. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 2. We read about the life of another person named Amaziah. And it's summed up in a sentence. And here's what the life of this king says. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with his whole heart. You hear that? Listen to this again. About Amaziah, it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And we might say, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's all we're asking for. Doesn't Nothing else left. But it says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with his whole heart. God saw fit to put that in there. That there's something missing. It's not just do what's right. Brothers, do what's right with your whole heart. Brethren, that's a sad commentary. That is written about Amaziah in eternity forever. That's a sad commentary, brethren. May God keep us from that. Do it with your whole heart. Number three, pursue what is good. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 again. <clears throat> If we're going to fight hard and we're going to run well, we have to vigorously pursue what is good. So I'm taking that, 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. We read it, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So there's six, six qualities that ought to permeate the life of of a Christian. And obviously these are not exhaustive. These are not the only six things to be concerned about, but they are a good general list of, for us of what honors the Lord. And so some of these things we'll consider under, under different headings, but I want you to just briefly think about two of them. You see, he says here, pursue godliness and faith. Now, brother, if we're going to pursue what is good, that is that means that we pursue that which accords with God's nature and God's character. To seek godliness is to seek to walk and live in all ways that honor God. And one way that we need to do this is to walk by faith. So that was the other one. By faith. And brethren, if there's anything that the church is in desperate need of in this age, it is a total revamp of what faith in God means. 
Brethren, we need to stir up real faith in God. We need to stir up the kind of faith in God. I've been having Sergio read this. George Mueller. Talk about faith in God. A man who, who housed and cared for thousands and thousands of orphans in his lifetime. Raised over millions of dollars. You know how he did it? Praying to God. That's it. He never told anybody about his needs. He never went anywhere and, and publicly announced it. He went in his closet and he prayed to God to provide for these orphans. And God did it. For years, brethren, God did it. And he built these orphanages and he cared for these kids his whole life by faith in God. Brethren, we got to stir that back up. We need the kind of faith in God that's total dependence, total trust. We need to live in such a way by faith that leads us to go where we would never go unless we have faith that God's going to do it. We need the kind of faith that says, listen, brethren, here's what, the, here's what most of Christianity will give you as an example of faith. You sit down in the chair and you trust that the chair is going to hold you up. But you know what, brethren? You've sat in a chair a thousand times, a million times. You know the chair is going to hold you up. It always has held you up. It's just probabilities. But there's another, another pastor, and he says this. I detest that type of faith. The real type of faith is this. You go and you get on an airplane. And the pilot says to you, this plane is going to crash unless God himself holds it up. And you still get on that airplane, trusting God to do it. Brethren, that's the kind of faith we need. That's the kind of faith that trusts our Father, that says He says He's going to do the impossible. We trust Him for that. Brethren, we need that kind of faith. We need to pursue what is good. You don't have to turn there, just listen to this. This is Philippians chapter 4. We would do well to constantly think on these verses. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Number four, put sin to death. Now, I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be in this passage, I think, for the rest of the time. So Hebrews 12, verse 1. Listen, if we're going to pursue what is good, you know what the flip side of that would be? To flee from evil, right? If we're pursuing what's good, we're not spending any more time running after sin. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I just want you to understand what he's getting at. We just came out of chapter 11, and here what you have is, is all these examples of godly men and women that have walked by faith all of their life and died in faith. And here we have this writer telling us, this is a great cloud of witnesses. And because all these witnesses surround us by their life, what ought we to do? 
He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So here we have this exhortation. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us. Now we're going to look at what, the, what he means by a weight in a minute. But just consider this. Consider the necessity to lay aside sin. Brethren, there's no doubt that the Bible gives us charge after charge after charge to do this. To remove sin. To kill sin. Listen, just a few. 1 Corinthians 15.34, do not go on sinning. Romans 6, 1 and 2, shall we continue in sin? By no means. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. 1 John 3.9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Romans 8.13, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which is corrupt. Colossians 3.5, put to death what is earthly in you. Brethren, we can go on and on and on. The Bible is filled with this thing. It gives no room for people who want to claim Jesus Christ as their own and yet also cling to their sin. There's no room for that. Jesus is met with a group of people in His ministry. This is in the book of Luke. You can go see it there. Jesus met with these people and he says to them, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I tell you to? So Jesus confronts them. And he, and he tells us, If you will not walk in obedience, you have no place to continue to call me Lord. If you will not lay aside your sin, if you'll cling to your sin and you want to hold on to it, he says, stop calling me Lord. I'm not your Lord. You don't do what I tell you. So brethren, those of you who would desire that, who desire Jesus Christ to be your Lord, I will tell you this, you will only run as well as you do not put hindrances of sin in your way. You know, Scripture says in Isaiah, your sin has caused... God says, I've hidden my eyes from you. It's this wall that comes up. But God says, I will, not, <clears throat> I will not hear your prayers, and I cannot see you because of your sin. So, brethren, we're only going to run so well as we don't put barricades of sin in our way. So what I would encourage you, brethren, put sin to death. Labor that it would be the case in your life. Don't let these things hinder you and block you. Number five. Lay aside the things that weigh you down. Now you see this. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now this is an interesting addition. This is, this is something that I don't think gets enough emphasis. We're taught, we always talk about lay aside sin, don't sin, but we rarely talk about things that are weights. So what is meant here 
Brethren, I propose this to you. If you can grasp this, if you can get an understanding of what's being said here, I can promise you that you will fight harder and run better than the majority of Christians in this world. You will far surpass them in the race. So what's a weight? Well, you might think it's something... It could also be maybe called a hindrance, something that weighs you down, something that, something that keeps you from doing something else as well as you could do it, certainly keeps you from running as well as you could. Brethren, I want you to paint a picture. I want, I want to paint a picture for you. Well, firstly, think of this. Whether you're an immature Christian or you've been a Christian for 50 years, I want you to think about this and, and really think about your thought process of how you consider your daily life in Christ. Because here's what I so often find. I, and I talked about this maybe two weeks ago, I think it was. Christians are often so caught up in trying to find out what they are allowed to do. They're, they're trying to think, well, the Bible says don't sin, so let me just figure out what's not sin, and I'm just going to stay away from those things right there that are not sin, instead of being concerned with what is the greatest benefit for them. <coughs> Often, Christians are so concerned with trying to see how little biblical character they can attain and how much of the world they can retain and yet still claim Christ. And brethren, I'll tell you right now, I've seen these people, I know these people, and here's what they tend to do. They tend to call other people who are fighting for holiness and fighting that they would be more like Christ, they want to point at them and call them legalistic. Because, other, because these other Christians are so concerned that, that if I have freedom to do this, just let me do this. Don't tell me it's going to hinder me, or don't tell me it won't. It will, it's hindering my, my running, how well I'm doing. Brethren, we don't want that. We want to get rid of the weight. Now listen to this picture. You imagine a man, he shows up at the Olympic race. And he shows up and he's got training weights strapped all over him. You've seen these things. They go on your ankles. They go on your wrist. You can put a big old giant thing on. I don't know. I'm, I don't do the gym thing. But you've seen these things. They're just weights, right? They're meant to help people train so that when they take off the weights, they're better than when they had the weights on. So this man, he comes up to his starting line, and he's got these weights strapped all over him. And he's getting ready, he's getting his feet in the stirrups and all that, all that deal. And his trainer comes walking up to him and he says, Hey, why do you got those weights on? You're not going to run so well with those weights on. You probably should take those weights off. And you imagine this runner turns to his trainer and he says, You show me in the rule book where it says I can't wear these weights. Where does it say I can't wear these weights? I'm allowed to wear these weights. Who are you to say I can't wear these weights? These weights. Well, brethren, yeah, sir, he, he could wear them. He could wear even more than he has on right now. But I'll tell you this, he's not going to run so well. Something's going to hinder him. Do you think he'll run well? You think he's going to win the race with all those weights on him? Certainly not. He's going to be weighed down. He's not going to win. He's not going to run well. So brethren, it's, it's pertinent that, that we consider our lives constantly, that we would see that maybe something's not sin, but maybe it's a weight. Maybe it's something that's just hindering you from running as well as you could run. 
Don't you want to run well, brethren? Don't you want to be sprinting there? You don't want these things weighing you down. Brethren, you might find that if those weights are removed, your Christian life will make progress that you would have never thought it could have made. I saw this in my own life many a times. I'm clinging to something that I'm like, ah, it's not bad. I just want to do it. Just people leave me alone. And the minute I say, Lord, I don't want this, it's a weight. It's, I mean, it's like the Lord, you know, the scripture says that we're, we're being made into his image from glory to glory. And it's like that happens. You move from one to the next because your greatest concern becomes what is of greatest benefit to my spiritual life, not just what's allowable for me. So if we're going to make progress, brethren, we need to seek that we're not strapped up with all these weights. You need to seek of what would be of greatest benefit to you spiritually. Remove the weights, brethren. Remove them. Number six, run with endurance. We heard from Dave talk about this. Brethren, I know what it's like. You see this encouragement in this passage. He says, Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why is that there? Brethren, that's there because we need this. The Lord knows. He knows our tendency to grow sluggish. He knows our tendency to grow weak. Paul brings up this in another place. 1 Corinthians 9.24, he says, In a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. He's not saying that only one of you is going to get to heaven. He's just saying that in a race, only one person gets the prize. So don't you want to run that you would obtain the prize? Why just sit back and think, well, I'm going to get the prize anyway. Might as well just hang out. Brethren, there's a prize we have to attain, and that being eternal life. And I would have that you would run well to receive it. Brethren, I know what it's like. I know what it's like that it's long and tiresome and you grow weary and you want to sit on the sideline and you want to go to sleep sometimes. I know what it's like when Jesus says, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. I know that well, just like you do. But brethren, I want you to consider something. I don't know if you've read this book or not, but you get a picture of this in a book called Pilgrim's Progress. And you have a man named Christian, and he's on his way to the celestial city. It's heaven. So he's on his way to heaven, and he comes to a place, and it says that it's an arbor. It, it's just a bunch of trees. It's an arbor, and, it, and it's basically there for the rest of weary pilgrims. And he comes to this place, and he falls asleep. And he stays asleep for a while. And then he awakens suddenly, and he's fearful because he's lost all this time. And then he goes up the hill of difficulty, and then he gets to the top, and he's about to go through these lions. And then he sits there, and he's worried, and he goes to search in his, in his, his pocket for the scroll, which is the Word of God, and he can't find it. And he becomes in turmoil because... Well, I need my scroll. That's the only way I'm getting to the celestial city. That's my only comfort. And he becomes worried. And what does he have to do? He's got to go all the way back down. And he kicks himself the whole way. And he says, I have to walk the same ground three times because I grew weary and I fell asleep and I lost my scroll. 
And he's got to go all the way back to the arbor to find his scroll and all the way back up again, the hill of difficulty. Brother, I know what it's like. I had this recently. This past week for me was one where I was filled, just overwhelmed with, with weariness. And a lot of the things that the Lord has given us to do, and a text that always encourages me, I want you to see this, Isaiah chapter 40. This is a text that I would have you to often go to if you find yourself in this place. This is where we can lean on, how we can endure, that the Lord would lift us up. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. He says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall be renewed their strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. Brethren, it says back in Hebrews that Jesus Christ endured the cross with joy. Brethren, He will certainly give us strength to endure ours. Undoubtedly, He will do so. Lastly, go back there. Hebrews chapter 12. This is a fitting place for us to end, brethren. Hebrews 12, we're going to read 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Brethren, number seven, look to Jesus. Brethren, do not forget that in this fight and in this race, we're not just running aimlessly. We're not just packing up zeal and packing up fervency and going on a full sprint with a blindfold on. Brethren, we need to look to Jesus. We need to have our eyes set on Him. On the King of glory. He is our example, brethren. But He's not just our example. He is our hope. Where else are we going to set our eyes on? And I'll tell you this. People who get off track. People that, people that fail to run well. They, they end up going way over here and they got to make their way back. The reason is because they take their eyes off Jesus. Maybe they take their eyes and, and put them on Something in the distance that catches their attention. Maybe they put their eyes on their own feet, on their own selves, instead of looking to Jesus. Maybe they put their eyes on some idol that takes their devotion away from Jesus. But brother, we need to open our, wide, our, our eyes wide that we would see Christ for who He is and we would set our eyes on Him. Brother, Jesus Christ is the focal point. 
He, he is what all life is for. He's the only thing really to be considered. C.T. Studd, missionary to Africa. Maybe you've heard this before. He wrote a poem entitled, Only One Life Will Soon Be Passed. Only What's Done for Christ Will Last. Brother, that's what it means to look to Jesus in all things. Brother, will you set your eyes on Christ for your salvation? Will you set your eyes on Christ for your sanctification? Will you set your eyes on Christ for His surface, service and His worship? Above all things, if you want to run well, you need to set your eyes on Jesus. And don't take them off of Him. Hear these words of this hymn. Look to Jesus, weary one. Look and live, look and live. Look at what the Lord has done. Look and live. See Him lifted on that tree. Look and live. Look and live. Hear Him say, Look unto me. Look and live. Brethren, we got to look to Jesus. Let's pray.